And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thank you for joining us. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm excited about today's show because we have a cannabis legal expert and speaker, Patrick Nightingale, to help us make sense of some of the bizarre developments on the cannabis front. There's no shortage of bizarre news to keep up with lately. Keeping pace with it all is just too overwhelming, and making sense of it is even more overwhelming. While the most shocking news in any given day dominate headlines, other consequential events are shaping our future, often without our knowledge. The most consequential are often intentionally buried by the newsmakers who don't want anybody to know about it in reality. And in journalism speak, it's called a news dump, which usually happens on a Friday night after the news crews go home for the weekend. Never mind that any one of those earth-shattering events could create a media free-for-all on any normal news day, such as the world we live in. With a topic like cannabis that's not already on top of the news cycle, it takes some serious surveillance to stay on top of it. Welcome to my world. Considering that for decades the topic of cannabis was too taboo to even discuss at the dinner table, any scientific or regulatory change would be headline news sparking public debate for weeks. The pace at which the industry and policy change is evolving now is newsworthy in and of itself. But with everything else going on in our country, most developments in the cannabis world, good or bad, are happening at lightning speed under the radar to the point where it's almost impossible to keep up with it. Even some lawmakers are in the dark about regulatory changes, especially when agencies like the DEA and FDA dump news to avoid unwelcome publicity and uninformed jurists rule on court cases further blurring the lines of justice. Case in point, Arizona's inane ban on medical cannabis concentrates, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Another is California's adult use policy, which promises to create tons of jobs, attract investment into the state, reduce prison populations, open the door to scientific research, and bring in billions of dollars in revenue into the state's coffers. It would be the last place I'd look for bad news on the regulatory front, so you can only imagine my surprise to learn that CBD, you know, the harmless non-psychoactive cannabinoid that helps children with epilepsy, can no longer be used in any food product or dietary supplement sold in the state of California, not even in dispensaries. Why has to do with new FDA policy, which has to do with another major development that few people heard about. It's a recent decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was based on the DEA's move to assign CBD its own code in Schedule 1 last year. Apparently, can't be contested because no one objected during a public commentary period, which no one knew about because it never made the news. That's the topic of today's show, and I am grateful that cannabis attorney Patrick Nightingale is here to explain it to us. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for the opportunity to talk about some very you know, important issues facing the emerging uh, cannabis industry uh, in this country. It's the bane of my existence because, you know, I'll write something one day and then the next day it turns out to be completely untrue and I have to go back and sort of recraft <laughs> the information so that people don't get even more confused when they read what we write. And often, you know, with interviews, it's hard to go back and revisit those issues. So it, I know that people just understand that this is an ever-evolving change environment, if you will. But... One of the things that has been a source of confusion for so many people has been this DEA directive that came down in the federal registry last year, a year and a half ago, basically assigning CBD its own class. And I have not spoken to two attorneys who have exactly the same opinion on it, which I find really, <laughs> everybody's got their own interpretation of this. I mean, some people say, well, the Ninth Circuit superseded DEA rule. Um, so the DEA can't really come in and do this. CBD is still legal if it's, especially if it's imported as the Ninth Circuit directed. And then, you know, now we've got these sort of rulings that are coming down without a lot of fanfare or publicity. So you've got an industry that has invested millions of dollars into something that is of high public demand, only to find out later that it might be illegal federally, the FDA is making regulations on it, the DEA is insisting that CBD is illegal, and the Ninth Circuit now coming back and saying, well, you know, since the DEA did this, I guess our rule really isn't any good anymore. What is your take on all of this? Well, you know, let's start with the uh, the recent litigation that uh, was denied by the Ninth Circuit, the Hemp Industry Association versus the DEA. Uh, the Hemp Industry Association sued the DEA uh, relative to this rulemaking process, basically saying that the DEA did not have the authority to uh, promulgate the rule to schedule CBD as a Schedule One controlled substance because CBD uh, is something that can be produced pursuant to the Farm Act. Um, but unfortunately, we never got to the merits of uh, the Hemp Industry uh, Association's claims uh, that the Farm Act basically supersedes uh, the DEA's ability to regulate this because the Ninth Circuit held that the Hemp Industry Association did not challenge uh, the DEA during the rulemaking process, which would have been impossible because nobody knew about it at the time. So it's kind of this catch-22 where you're not able to, you know, actually challenge something. And then the court says, but you are required to challenge it in order to have standing to bring this claim. Uh, what I like about it is that the court didn't get to the merits. And that means that at some point in time in the future, we're going to, I think, have, you know, real litigation on the merits of the Hemp Industry Association's claim that the Farm Bill supersedes uh, DEA regulatory authority on this and can present uh, that uh, uh, with an evidentiary argument uh, for the Ninth Circuit or for another uh, Circuit Court of Appeals uh, to directly get at you know, the heart of the Hemp Industry Association's claim that the DEA simply exceeded its, uh, uh, its regulatory authority. Um, and in support of that, uh, there was a brief filed by you know, the lawmakers who passed the Farm Bill led by Senator Rand Paul, and they said it was our legislative intent to allow the hemp industry to thrive 
to allow you know the commercialization of uh, products extracted or made from uh, industrial hemp pursuant to the farm bill so if we get to that point where legislative intent is relevant to a uh, court's decision i think the uh, the cbd industry is on strong footing now in the meantime we have uh, legislation that was uh, just went through the Senate, uh, championed by uh, uh, Mitch McConnell from uh, from Kentucky, who obviously wants to see the benefits of uh, of hemp cultivation in his state. That would remove hemp from uh, uh, from federal regulation or from the Controlled Substance Act in its entirety. Uh, that would, if that regulation or if that legislation passes, it would solve this issue. But from what I've read, it looks like there are some unrelated issues that are going to get it tied up in the House, and I would not be optimistic in seeing it moving forward uh, uh, through the House as quickly as it moves uh, through the Senate. Well, no doubt the House is going to be protecting the campaign donors <laughs> on this issue, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us in the industry to make a lot of noise about this, and especially with the upcoming elections also, you know, I'm going to try to figure out who the friends and foes are prior to the election. But barring that, regardless of whether or not hemp itself is, is legalized, hemp and its derivatives, I mean, I've read the entirety of the Hemp Act, which was inserted into the Agricultural Improvement Act, which passed the Senate. And it makes it really clear that the intent is that it's hemp in all of its constituents, all of its derivatives, extracts, everything else within the Senate version of this bill. And like you said, the the Congress, uh, the House is going to be the wild card here. But what my question would be is that, you know, a molecule is a molecule regardless of where it comes from. And the molecule itself is what the Federal Registry announced that was now its own numerical class in Schedule One of the controlled substances, and that is cannabidiol. So even though all of the constituents of hemp would be taken out of Schedule One in the farm legislation, what about CBD? I mean, you know, uh, let's say chocolate has a lot of CBD in it, you know, cannabidiol. CBD is a Schedule One numerical class. So how does one reconcile all of the constituents of the hemp plant with the fact that CBD, the molecule, regardless of where it comes from, is still in Schedule One because it did not specifically exclude or include CBD in the farm bill? You know, what, what is... What is remarkable and what is frustrating to me is that we're even having a discussion about it being placed in Schedule 1. Circle back to the beginning uh, and talk about what is a Schedule 1 controlled substance. A Schedule 1 controlled substance is a substance with no medical benefit and a high potential for abuse. How in the world does non-psychoactive cannabidiol meet the criteria of potentially having a high potential for abuse. How <laughs> is one even abusing this, uh, uh, this particular chemical compound? Well, I use a lot of it and my swelling goes down. Well, that's abuse and it must be Schedule 1. That doesn't make any fundamental sense whatsoever. And I think that that's one of those areas where if we can, you know, the industry can get this, uh, uh, get a lawsuit and 
frame the issues properly, that we can really have some success in saying, DEA, you are insane because you have absolutely no empirical way to prove that CBD meets the Schedule One criteria. Well, they can't prove it with THC either, but you know we're we're stuck with that at the moment. Uh, so that is something that I consider absolutely frustrating and maddening about this. And then again, just as you said, they've made CBD the chemical compound a Schedule One controlled substance, regardless of the source from what it, from which it is derived. So you could potentially, uh, not potentially, but absolutely have CBD derived from plants that have nothing to do with, with marijuana. CBD can be extracted from hops, for example. So now that is a Schedule One controlled substance. It, it really, I don't think it is sustainable, uh, but the DEA has proven that it'll do whatever the hell it wants to do because it is very difficult to challenge the DEA by filing the administrative appeals, preserving the issues, and then spending literally years of trying to, to, to litigate against them before you can actually get into a court of law. See, what I find really astonishing is that it, the DEA is among a number of governmental agencies that really are not held to account to justify their laws, aside from you know, just making an arbitrary decision about it. And with something that it impacts a great number of people who could potentially be going to jail for something that is clearly not justifiably in Schedule 1, you know, you would think that, that Congress would at least come up with a resolution of sorts that says that if, if our, our judicial branch is going to make rulings that it's incumbent upon them to actually prove their reasoning and justify beyond a shadow of a doubt why it complies with whatever schedule they're putting it into. I mean, this is a huge source of frustration for those of us who have become really educated about cannabis in general. And I think that the judicial (laughs) branch should be out of politics altogether, but unfortunately such as the life we're living right at the moment. Well, and, a, and a, a, a difficulty for the judicial branch is, you know, you have to bring a case uh, in controversy before a court. Uh, outside of uh, the Supreme Court uh, possibly advising Congress uh, on uh, the potential constitutionality of legislation, courts really cannot offer uh, declaratory opinions. They can't uh, take a, an issue and just say, okay, we're going to write about this issue to try to give some guidance as to how we would react if this came before the court, because you know the court wouldn't necessarily have all the facts or you know be able to you know frame its opinion in a way that wouldn't potentially you know demonstrate bias against a, a party that could potentially bring that type of case. So you know, looking to the judiciary to be proactive with this is something that's going to be very very frustrating. And just like with the Hemp Industry Association, you know, there are you know, regulatory rules and administrative rules in place that are going to be frustrating uh, for the industry to fight with because, oh, you mean five years ago I had to make an objection to this when we didn't even have this, uh, you know, this industry in existence? Uh, and those types of impediments, I think, are what are going to be extremely frustrating for lawyers and their clients moving forward. You know, when a lawyer tells a client, well, I can't challenge, you know, CBD's Schedule 1 classification because I didn't challenge it during the, uh, the rulemaking process. Um, 
I want to say we need legislative uh, uh, action on this. We we do see some you know, significant progress with uh, uh, with you know Congress being more and more attuned uh, to the needs of the, both the uh, hemp industry and and the cannabis industry. But you know, one or two people who do not want to see this type of legislation move forward can easily kill legislation in committee, tie it up, or you know, refuse to to act on it, have a hearing on it, refuse to uh, to bring it up for a vote. In the meantime, you know, we've got California saying we're going to kill you know this you know soon-to-be billion-dollar industry because we consider CBD uh, a, a food product and we're not permitting CBD to be added into food products, so everyone's out of luck. You know, that cannot possibly uh, be the path forward. Uh, we cannot you know take you know this extremely lucrative industry and all the people that have uh, invested in it and. Um, you know, opened up shops and are uh, are, are proceeding to make a good income and to pay taxes and to hire employees, and then suddenly say, "Wait a minute, we're going to you know strip this away from you because the FDA says it's not a food product." Right. And when did the FDA become the end all be all on this? I mean, obviously they regulate the food industry, but is CBD, especially hemp derived CBD, that goes into, for example, a drink mix, <laughs> something we're familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. Is that really a food product or is that just CBD in its manifestation as a specific, it's not being added necessarily to a food if it's being added to water and it just happens to have attributes to it such as flavoring or what have you. I mean, is that really making it a food substance? You know, I, I was looking at the FAQ from uh, from California's uh, Department of Health, and you know, not only do they say you know CBD cannot be you know added to a food uh, a food product, but they also use that catch-all term a dietary supplement, which I think is you know where the industry right now is saying, okay, this is why we're you know able to sell these products. We're not making specific medical claims about it, but we're offering it as a dietary supplement. So in that you know California FAQ. It seems to go as broad as possible uh, in saying we're banning it all, whether or not it's added to a food product, whether or not it's just a straight extracted oil, whether or not the CBD is grown in uh, or the hemp plants are grown in California or they're grown uh, out of state. You know, CBD extracted from hemp, we are not permitting. While in the meantime, we are you know regulating a marijuana, a cannabis industry that has food products that are high in psychoactive THC. It's just nonsensical. And I think that it is demonstrating some of the challenges that we have with an unregulated industry or a lightly regulated industry. Um, I think that the lightly regulated CBD you know, hemp extract industry has been good for business, but it's bad for regulators. And they get scared when they see things that are generating money that they can't regulate, that they don't know exactly what's going on with it. And you're going to see that regulatory overreach that we saw with the California Department of Health and with the FDA and the DEA. Right. See, and I wonder if there are studies right now about any deleterious effects of CBD because every single doctor or scientist that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed quite a few, have said to me that there is absolutely no toxic threshold for CBD. Or, and in fact, marijuana itself has never killed anyone, you know, unless it's somebody behind a wheel who was so inebriated that they couldn't function. 
or, you know, a bale of marijuana drops on their head and breaks their neck. Right. <laughs> or they get shot in the process of smuggling it, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the collateral dangers, but not the direct uh, risks associated with it. Right. I mean, every time I'm out speaking publicly uh, to groups of lawyers or educating law enforcement or something like that, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask is how many deaths have been caused by acute cannabinoid toxicity? How many people have overdosed from cannabis? And usually there's one person in the back of the room who raises their hand because they know the answer to the question. But, you know, to a person, people who are not familiar with, uh, uh, with this industry or with the advocacy are stunned when I tell them that not a single human being in the entire history of the human race has ever overdosed on cannabis. And then, of course, my joke is, and believe me, ladies and gentlemen, we've tried. Um, and that demonstrates that, you know, we're dealing with probably one of the safest non-toxic, you know, uh, chemicals or plants known to man. And yeah. THC has got the psychoactive component on it, but industrial hemp with these harmless little CBD uh, uh, cannabinoids that, you know, can have tremendous benefit is treated as if it's the same as heroin or meth. And that's bonkers. Yeah, it, it's absolutely wrong. And I really don't see a way out of this in our current political environment. And I think that it really is going to take educating a whole new batch of legislators who have not been completely brainwashed to really start hammering the DEA and the FDA about this issue. You know, I hate to say it this way, but, you know, literally money talks. And at the end of the day, if you cannot get someone to change their mind, you know, throw a big stack of cash in front of them and then they might start thinking about it. John Boehner, perfect example. You know, I, I on the one hand want to say, you know, former Speaker Boehner, get away from us. You've done more harm than you can ever uh, remedy in your uh, uh, positions about cannabis when you're in office. The other part of me wants to say, well, John, you've seen the light, whether it's the green light or the cash light, but welcome to the team and help us convince your fellow conservatives that we need to you know, have comprehensive reform and it's in everybody's best interest. Yeah, of course. And I was very, very surprised at the overwhelming support for the Hemp Act this round in going into the Agricultural Improvement Act. It's a sign that we're getting closer on a regulatory basis, but, you know, we still have a long way to go because there's still so much confusion about it. And I also think that, as you said, money talks. And I think that people are really afraid to stand up to the DEA and the FDA because legislation about both entities comes from the special interests. I mean, we've got billions and billions of dollars at stake in the private prison industry and in the pharmaceutical industry and in the fuel industry for that matter. And I think that there's still a lack of courage amongst our legislators to go up against some of those most powerful lobbies. I keep going back to Citizens United because <laughs> I, I think that that's, that's a huge part of the problem. But I was also very encouraged to see John Boehner actually step forward as an advocate for the industry. And I think that with him on board in this fight, we have a much better chance of convincing some of the old school conservatives who were against cannabis regulation altogether 
for, you know, not just their political lobby reasons, but also because they've been convinced through a lifetime that it's the devil's weed. And uh, yeah. And for a lot of these people, just to get them to sit down and listen to someone whose opinion they trust or whose opinion they, they, they don't believe is, you know, compromised by uh, some you know, political philosophy that they don't agree with. And that's where a, a John Boehner stands in a perfect position uh, to take the case to his former you know, colleagues uh, and say, listen, guys, I know it's going to sound crazy, but we were wrong about this. And here is the potential to you know, benefit our, to grow our economy, to generate tax revenue, to put people to work. And believe it or not, we should also care about reducing our prison population. And this would really go a long way to making uh, you know, political conservatives you know, look pretty good about tackling criminal justice reform issues. Well, and especially since the civil rights aspect of the criminal justice reform has always been something that is championed more on the liberal side of the aisle than on the conservative side of the aisle. And I think if they want to bring voters together on issues and start getting some of the more liberal voters to start considering more conservative candidates, they'd be really well served to embrace this as an issue, I think. And that reminds me of something too. I don't know if you're familiar with what has been going on in Arizona, but one of the most conservative counties where we've got prosecutors who have been actively fighting against any kind of marijuana reform. They, they write editorials every single week, and they've received millions of dollars, literally, from pharmaceuticals, alcohol, and private prison industries to feed their election campaign coffers. And they actually managed to pass a law in their jurisdiction through the courts that banned all extracts of the cannabis plant on the basis that... Yeah, they banned concentrates. Right, they banned all concentrates, any kind of uh, resins or oils or any kind of extracts whatsoever, and, and basically determined that the only thing legal, and it's sort of an obtuse interpretation of the medical law here in Arizona, the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, that the only thing that's legal really is just uh, marijuana defined as the flower and any preparation thereof, which they don't interpret to mean any extract thereof. <laughs> and it went all the way to the appellate court of Arizona. And the jurists there determined that indeed marijuana is not cannabis as defined by the criminal code. And therefore they sided with the county prosecutors were the conservative anti-marijuana people up in Yavapai County. And the gentleman at issue had already spent a year in prison and was sent back to prison for two and a half more years to serve out his sentence for being a card-carrying marijuana patient who had purchased hashish in a dispensary and was caught in Yavapai County, wrong place, wrong time, and prosecuted for having something that was deemed to be a criminal substance. And it's a felony. And three and a half years later with a felony record and completely damaging his future. And I cried when I learned about it because I was just so incensed. And I, I interviewed an attorney who's working on the appeal again or taking it to the Arizona Supreme Court. And, you know, it just... It boggles my mind how 
someone educated as educated as a judge must be to become a judge to look at that interpretation and obviously the voters intended for extracts because no mother wants to give their child a joint to smoke if if that child has epilepsy so <laughs> it, it it tells me that you know for each you know two steps forward that we take you know someone's going to make us take a step or a step and a half backwards um it we continue to deal with the stereotypes associated with uh, medical cannabis, with adult use cannabis. Uh, I did a, a, a presentation, a talk recently, and the title of it was uh, Second Class Citizens Confronting the Stereotypes Facing uh, Medical Cannabis Patients. And you know, to try to address literally decades worth of uh, reefer madness propaganda that never had any basis in fact, never had any basis in science, but which is accepted as fact. You know, it is very frustrating for me to go into a court or to uh, meet with a legislator or to talk to someone. And the first thing I hear out of their mouth is, well, Pat, you know, it's a gateway drug. So, you know, I don't want to increase heroin use. I'm like, where did you come to that conclusion? Look at Colorado, for example, where heroin use is down. You know, the gateway uh, myth has been widely debunked. And then they move to the next favorite talking point. Well, of course, you know, marijuana kills brain cells and increases your risk of lung cancer. Like, where do you get this? Are you aware that uh, uh, the United States government, uh, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, has a patent on THC as a neuroprotectant, meaning it heals brain trauma, not causes brain trauma? Oh, we didn't know about that either. Well, isn't there four times as much tar in a marijuana cigarette as an average cigarette? Yes, there is. However, there has never been any correlation between smoke, uh, chronic smoking of marijuana and lung cancer or cardiopulmonary disease or anything like that. And take it a step further, we also use uh, methods of ingestion that do not involve combustion. And in fact, in many cases, that method uh, of ingestion, especially for a patient, may be superior for the delivery of cannabinoids. And it's the 21st century, it's 2018. We've got 29 medical states. We've got eight adult use states. Washington, D.C. has uh, legalized for both medical and, and adult use. And I still get people, my contemporaries, people in their you know, mid, late 40s or early 50s, telling me these things as if they're simply accepted, uh, agreed upon fact when it's all nonsense. And you're basing policy decisions on your complete and utter ignorance of the facts. And that's what we continue to fight with. And that's exactly what's uh, going on in Arizona. Yeah, absolutely. It is. <laughs> it's insanely frustrating. But, you know, and not only that, but the government's own medical arm, the National Institute of Health uh, conducted a study that was a laboratory study that showed that cannabinoids actually induce the eptopic response from cancer cells. So in other words, it kills cancer cells. And this was a study sanctioned by the U.S. government, conducted by a U.S. government-sponsored entity, and yet they're still contradicting those facts. And yeah, the hypocrisy is just, for the last 80 years, the hypocrisy has just been astonishing but we're kind of living in a, in a time right now where 
I, I equate it to the proto-Renaissance almost, you know, where, where we're about to give birth to some pretty significant enlightenment of uh, unjust policy. And there seems to be this underpinning of something wanting to break through this massive amount of hypocrisy that's in our government. And it seems the closer that we get to this, the more the heels are being dug in and, and the resistance to this change is unfortunately being uh, barred or blocked by the people who are in power currently. And it, I go back to this issue, we've got a midterm election where what 12% of the population typically vote in, a, in an election uh, that's a midterm, not a general election. And we have an opportunity to maybe try to make some changes, but until we get out of our own way, we meaning the collective United States of America, the, the government particularly, until we get out of the way, some of these revelations just are going to be suppressed. Uh, I used to say, uh, you know, we're literally one generation of politicians away from, you know, solving this problem. You know, just wait for, for the old guard to, to move on get some fresh faces in there, and then, you know, we will take care of this. I don't want to wait anymore. Nobody should have to wait anymore. You know, there are almost, you know, you know 700, 800,000 uh, American citizens annually prosecuted with some type of marijuana crime. The majority of our possessory offenses, of course, but those can have life-altering effects, just like we discussed with the, that poor gentleman uh, who had to go back to prison for, for extract. You know, even a simple cannabis uh, conviction can deny you public housing, can deny you uh, economic opportunities, uh, can cause of, loss of pro professional licensure, loss of uh, uh, driver's licenses. I mean, we should no longer have to say, well, you know, let's just wait a few more years and then we'll have a more uh, favorable political climate. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, um, Americans every single day uh, are harmed by this continuing uh, prohibition and we're losing out on the opportunity to create a large, sustainable job-creating industry throughout the United States. You know, I don't know about you, but I think that we could use, you know, uh, uh, some good jobs. We could use a new industry that, you know, already exists in the shadows. And we could certainly benefit from some of that tax revenue, which is otherwise just disappearing into the black market and going uh, who knows where. Yeah, and going into the hands of cartels who wind up uh, creating the violence that people think that marijuana is responsible for. But yeah, and, and also, you know, one of the other things that in the long list of problems that prohibition is causing, one of the things you didn't mention is the fact that in many instances, felons lose their right to vote. And yes. so they're taken out of the decision-making pool which I think is yeah, really, really disenfranchisement is huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. You yeah. Know, and you know, I'm in Pennsylvania where a felon who is not actively serving a sentence can vote, but you know, states are different, uh, you know, on a state to state basis and under no circumstances should we be disenfranchising a large uh, portion of our population and consider this, you know, across the board, people of color in this country are charged with and convicted of cannabis uh, crimes, at a far higher rate than their uh, than their white uh, you know compatriots, despite similar rates of usage. So this type of voter suppression, using you know marijuana convictions to keep someone from being able to vote, is having a disproportionate impact on our communities of color. 
Well, if you go back to like the Nixon-Ehrlichman tapes, you'll know that one of the primary reasons they knew that marijuana was not dangerous, they knew that it wasn't causing problems in our society, and in fact, if anything, it was helping. But what they also knew is that the people who were bringing marijuana into the public eye and making it popular were against, vehemently against, Nixon's policies. And the one way to solve it was to have those people thrown in jail. And they admitted this it, it, on tape. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something like we knew we couldn't criminalize being poor or being black, but we could take away from them something that they enjoyed, and that was the next best thing. You know, something like that. It was just, you know, heinous, absolutely heinous that as a matter of national policy, that it was so nakedly and blatantly not only political, but political and racist and based on uh, absolute lies. Yeah, we seem to be in like a 35-year cycle of this. Um, the same thing happened in the 19, late 1930s with Anslinger and Hearst and DuPont and, and that whole conspiracy with the uh, reefer madness. That campaign was absolutely, hands down, one of the most brilliant PR campaigns in our history. The second most brilliant PR campaign was that of that Vietnam era when they actually were able to convince people that marijuana needed to be Schedule One along with all of these other drugs that people were, you know, enjoying at that time. And now we have yet another one of the most brilliant PR campaigns going on in the history of mankind, which isn't necessarily related to cannabis per se. <laughs> It's more related to a division that's happening from external sources, uh, which shall remain unmentionable because I try my best not to get political on this show. But, it, you know, in times like these, you almost can't help it, but to make, to draw the comparisons, and we're in this sort of 35-year cycle again where we've had this rebirth of cannabis, but there are some very, very powerful actions that are fighting it tooth and nail. And then the other thing that um, I, I can't help but go back to, you know, when you mentioned explaining to people, well, listen, this is not a gateway drug. It hasn't killed anybody, blah, blah, blah. The evidence is mounting at the moment that states where cannabis has been legalized for either medical or adult use, they're showing significant drops in the number of opiate deaths. And when you consider that as of June this year, I think the number was already up to 62,000 people had died from opiate overdoses. But in states where cannabis is accessible to patients, you know, and especially to elderly people who are often given these drugs that just are not intended for human consumption and they're given cannabis instead, they're coming off of these, these drugs that make them zombies, like, you know, the, the Ativans of the world and, and the opiates that they're constantly prescribed for pain. And when you've got your grandma and grandpa addicted to opiates, you know, you've got a huge problem, but if something is going to solve that, the chances are they're not going to die from their medicine and you know, instead have a higher quality of life. You are exactly right. It, it, it pains me to see, you know, during a sporting event or, you know, during a primetime television, you know, pharmaceutical advertisements for people dealing with constipation secondary to, you know, opioid, chronic opioid use. I'm like, really? 
that's where this pharmaceutical industry has brought us, that they are now you know, engaging in multi-million dollar marketing campaigns for drugs to deal with the side effects of the drugs that they're already making billions of dollars off of. And you know, I'm a criminal defense uh, practitioner by trade primarily uh, here in Pittsburgh, and I cannot tell you how many clients that I have uh, represented who are being prosecuted for you know, uh, heroin possession, heroin distribution, well, how did you get started sticking a needle in your arm? Well, I got hurt at work and my you know, doctor gave me a whole bunch of Oxy or a whole bunch of Percocet. My script ran out. He wouldn't renew it. Next thing you know, I'm buying stamp bags and you know, you know, hustling to try to you know, cover my own, uh, my own addiction. And now I'm going to prison. Half of my friends are dead. It, it, it's absolutely astounding the damage, the collateral damage that has been caused by the pharmaceutical industry's lie that OxyContin was a safe drug and therefore could just flood the streets uh, in the uh, late 1990s uh, as it did. You know, when, it, when someone who is an opioid addict is looking at $30 for an Oxy30 or $5 for a stamp bag of heroin, guess what they're going to buy? Right. And that combined with the risk of fatal overdose deaths from street level heroin, which is increasingly laced with uh, you know, powerful fentanyl, uh, being delivered directly from China, we are setting ourselves up for a public health disaster unless we you know, start to wean ourselves as a country, wean our medical professionals off of the overprescription of opioids, but without compassion for the people that may still need you know, uh, uh, opioid prescriptions because there are some people who are suffering and cannabis may not be the answer for them. But I don't want our medical uh, uh, professionals to say, well, wait a minute, I'm so scared of giving you opioids that here you get an aspirin and that's it. Right. And that is a huge problem. And I think that there is a time and a place for opiates. Um, I think acute pain cannot be addressed adequately with cannabis. Certainly people who are on their last breath of cancer and that overwhelming pain, you know, morphine is a good answer. But I agree wholeheartedly that the overprescription or overprescribing of opiates is just completely out of control. You know, I always wonder too if the studies that were distributed to doctors and hospitals on the efficacy and safety of these extremely harsh opiate drugs, if those wouldn't constitute fraud in some way. And <laughs> in my heart of hearts, I'd like to take all of these pharmaceutical companies who lied about this issue and who are continually making new medicines that people have to buy because their stomach hurts or because, you know, it's causing their, their uh, ligaments to dissolve because they're taking these horrible drugs or, you know, they're taking something to wake someone up when a drug makes them too sleepy and they're making billions of dollars off of the side effects, like you said. I wonder if that constitutes a crime against humanity because these are not just, you know, oops, oh, well, you know, here, just take this, it's harmless, whatever. People are dying from these cocktails of drugs. I mean, literally just dropping off the face of the planet because they're trying to solve the problems that are being caused by the drugs that they're being prescribed that are not intended for human consumption because your liver can't handle these synthetics. It can handle plant substances, but not these synthetics. So wouldn't it be worthy of a lawsuit against like a class action on behalf of the entire United States 
a class action lawsuit against the biggest offenders of this false advertising that was going on during the time when doctors became such huge fans of opiates. I'm wondering if there would, if there would be a uh, viable cause of action with a civil uh, RICO lawsuit. Yeah, RICO. That's interesting. Yeah, RICO is you know, both a, a, a criminal statute, but it also provides for you know, civil remedies. Uh, that may be an interesting uh, avenue uh, to explore. You know, would uh, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, for example, or uh, whomever, uh, be subject to a, a RICO lawsuit uh, with being able to show, listen, you, you put things out there that you, you know, showed a reckless disregard for the, the potential harm that you were causing and continue to do so even after, you know, you received, you know, hard and fast evidence that, you know, this drug that you marketed as 100% safe is anything but. Absolutely right. I'm also thinking, you know, The Hague would be a good place for some of these. But, you know, now they can argue, well, we advertise these products, but we give you a long list of side effects. It's like we're disclosing that this could potentially cause suicidal action or cause death or cause blindness. Or And yeah, <laughs> they do. And meanwhile, people are watching these beautiful images of these happy, healthy, lovely people on TV while they're listening to this <laughs> long list of side effects, uh, including death and suicide. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I hate to laugh because it is such a sad, tragic issue. Yeah, and, you know, compare and contrast with a plant that has never hurt anybody and the worst side effects may involve some uh, some level of uh, uh, intoxication, maybe a little dry mouth, maybe you get a little tired, maybe your heart rate goes up a little bit. But that's the extent of the side effect that we're talking about using uh, uh, medical cannabis. And I think that we're rapidly getting to the point where physicians are going to start to say, you know what, let's start with a natural non-toxic treatment alternative for your pain. And if that doesn't work, then maybe we can talk about, you know, a more you know, powerful prescription uh, uh, medication. But let's not start with the highly addictive opioids and then try to back out of that once the patient gets addicted and be like, oh, nuts. Now we've got to, you know, explore non-toxic non uh, natural treatment alternatives. See, if the DEA were complicit with the pharmaceutical companies who were clearly not disclosing all of the terrible side effects. And in issuing licenses for companies like Insys to import vast quantities of opium poppies from Afghanistan and uh, coca leaves from Colombia and all of these other substances that, that create their toxic drugs and allow them to put their synthetic versions of these molecules that are in cannabis or coca or poppies into forms that actually are toxic to the human kidneys and liver and cause brain damage and cause these, these other side effects. If, you, if one in their fantasy of fantasies were to have a case, a RICO case against pharmaceutical companies, wouldn't the DEA, the, the, the powerful elite part of the DEA, be complicit in, in those violations as well? Yeah, I, I like it. Uh, I, I like the, uh, uh, the theory behind the cause of action because these companies would not be in the position uh, to you know, put 
toxic pharmaceutical uh, uh, products out there without the DA giving them uh, uh, the green light to manufacture these products and distribute them. Well, that and the FDA as well, because the FDA is allowing these studies to go through without requiring the burden of proof from outside studies. A lot of, you know, it's like, um, what's a good analogy? You know, I, I love the, you know, fox guarding the hen house theory, but when, when you're looking at the FDA, which is clearly a more political body than it is a safety regulatory body in terms of its function, and they're looking at studies that are actually produced by the pharmaceutical companies to prove the efficacy and safety of their products, and then granting them permission to distribute for sale these products to the public, rather than kind of looking out for the public's best interest, they're really protecting these companies. And, you know, Monsanto's one of them. And, you know, I can't even get started on that side of the equation because I really believe that there have been some just egregious violation of human rights in terms of presenting people with products that are supposed to be safe but contain large quantities of glyphosate, which is partly responsible for uh, a lot of the neurological conditions you see in children. It's really pathetic. Okay, I digress, but you know, the FDA, they're approving these things as well. And I would think that we need to get to a place in our country where the regulatory bodies are actually protecting the residents of the United States as opposed to protecting the corporate interests. And this is where I think we need to have like public outcries, (laughs) but a lawsuit. I'm just, I wish, you know, if I had, if I had billions of dollars in my pocket, that's how I would spend it. I would spend it on going after some of these injustices. (laughs) I like your thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it really is is kind of uh, you know turned on its head. Uh, the DEA uh, literally has a war against American citizens because it has locked itself into this uh, uh, belief that it's got to protect us from you know uh, which substances we use to uh, rec- recreationally uh, um, you know, intoxicate ourselves with. Alcohol is fine. Marijuana, oh my God, we got to put you in jail. Well, DEA, why? And you know why is it? the position of your agency to double down on taking rights away from Americans as opposed to trying to find a way to work with Americans. And the FDA, just like you said as well, wait a minute, whose side are you on? Are you not supposed to be protecting you know, the consumers in this country as opposed to making it easier for corporate interests uh, to become wealthy by saying, hey, we got FDA approval, so you know, this substance is harmless. You know, off you go, and then 10 years later, you realize, oh, this wasn't nearly as harmless as we thought it was. Sorry, our bad. We'll try to do better next time. That, that, that you're exactly right. These agencies are failing the American public, but they're benefiting you know, the corporate interests uh, that are trying to uh, you know, simply you know, use an FDA approval to say, hey, this is safe, when in fact it is not. Yeah. It, it is just, it, it just seems so criminal, so, so criminal. So let me ask you this. If you had the attention of the House of Representatives, you were going to go and testify before them today. 
what would be your primary message to them? Uh, my primary message would be to remove cannabis uh, as a Schedule One controlled substance. Um, in a best case scenario, to remove cannabis and CBD and cannabinoids from uh, the Controlled Substances Act in its entirety. But if you're not willing to go that far, we have at least got to have a meeting of the minds that it is not a Schedule One controlled substance. Because that Schedule One classification, not only being nonsensical, as we've already discussed, uh, but it inhibits research. It uh, deprives uh, cannabis consumers of valuable rights, including Second Amendment rights, which is something that is important to a lot of people here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it uh, puts people in a position where the federal push and pull against the states is causing um, significant difficulty with banking, with taxation, with employment with housing, uh, just across the board. And you know, to the House of Representatives, I would say, please listen to your constituents. Look at the polling numbers. Look at the evidence from the states that have already embraced medical and have embraced uh, adult use. Your opposition to it, uh, even allowing a rescheduling from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 is causing so much harm that you're not even aware of and, you know, if you want to take that incremental approach, ladies and gentlemen uh, of the United States House of Representatives, can we at least agree on Schedule 2? So a lot of these impediments for research and a lot of the prejudices that, uh, that cannabis patients are facing on a daily basis uh, is something that uh, we can at least do away with, get that research, prove uh, medical efficacy, prove safety, uh, prove therapeutic levels and move forward with a, a successful emerging industry. Wow. Well, one could only hope that there are one or two members of our legislative body listening to you right now because that was, um, I think you make such a great case for this. And um, I would want full federal legalization and, you know, the, the game's on, but I understand that, you know, a lot of people you know, need to be educated. They need to be walked, uh, you know, taken by the hand and walked to some of these uh, arguments that uh, that us advocates have been using for years. Uh, I hate the notion of the incremental approach necessarily, but when we're faced with a, a legislative body that will not even hold hearings on bills that uh, are assigned to committee uh, because the committee chair simply refuses to, uh, to, uh, to give it a vote uh, because they're opposed to it, it's like, hey guys, you know, meet us halfway on this and let's find some path forward that, you know, can make you feel comfortable that you haven't just fully legalized marijuana, but that can really, you know, help the industry help you understand it better. Yeah. And more importantly, please start uh, representing. Yeah. And more importantly, please start uh, representing people, not campaign donors. Look at uh, constituents. Yes. And across the board, they want reform. Mm hmm. Uh, and, and with each, with, with, with more and more states coming on with medical programs, now all of a sudden Pennsylvania has something in common with California, with Washington, with Nevada, uh, with Arizona, with Maine, with Vermont. We are now nationwide. This is a nationwide movement where we all have the exact same general interests at, you know, protecting patients, uh, protecting adult use consumers, you know, allowing uh, this industry to reach its potential 
with all of the potential economic uh, benefit that comes from producing jobs and generating tax revenue. You know, we're all in this fight together. And it's really exciting that it's no longer just a West Coast thing. It's no longer, oh, this couldn't possibly happen in my state. Because I tell you what, if Pennsylvania can pass a comprehensive medical uh, cannabis law that permits high quality uh, concentrates uh, to be sold through our dispensaries, anything's possible. Yes, indeed. And I think that Pennsylvania has really taken the lead on looking out for the patients in their new policy. So, and I, I think that the states that do come on board could really learn a lot from reading the law in its entirety and including and incorporating some of those principles that are in the Pennsylvania law into their own state's regulatory reform because as we've seen, the lack of specificity, if you will, in the state of Arizona and even in California and in other states is really causing a problem down the road. So yeah, kudos to Pennsylvania, I have to say. <laughs> so, but, you know, we don't yeah. often get things right, but with this one, we didn't get it all wrong. Uh, it went through a meat grinder in our, uh, in our state capital. We, we came, I think, seven votes away from a 10% THC cap on all uh, medical cannabis products. And, you know, we almost had a CBD-only amendment uh, tacked onto the bill. But uh, here in Pennsylvania, at least, we had a bipartisan co uh, coalition of Republicans and Democrats who, can you believe it, listened to their constituents and listened to the patients and, you know, crafted a, a workable compromise that now has our, has our industry up and running. That's a fantastic standard for everyone in any kind of governmental capacity to learn from. So that's great news, absolutely. This is definitely a fight that is uh, going to be going on for some time, I'm afraid, but I, I think with any luck, the public support is going to just keep growing. So I'm getting a signal that it's time for us to start wrapping up here today. And I have to say, I really appreciate your insights. And Patrick, thank you again so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It was absolutely my pleasure. Um, I, you know, I'm at your disposal for any questions uh, or anything uh, moving forward in the future, or if there's anything we need to clarify from today's interview, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you for that. I do appreciate it. So. Oh, once again, we must bring another show to a close. I would personally like to thank my guest, Patrick Nightingale, for his insights and knowledge today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find his bio and more information. We have so many others to thank. First, I would like to thank our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Health Terra, Canisphere, and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our production team here at The Cannabis Reporter for always making us shine, and XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is
you're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24-7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.